Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What is the first brand in your life as a young girl that made an impact on you? General Motors. Wow, that's an interesting one. Why? <laughs> because uh, my dad, uh, my parents got married when I was young, and I'd lived on a farm the first part of my life, but my dad was a sales engineer at General Motors, and every three months, we would get a new car. We'd get a new GM car because he traveled all over the place, and so I grew up in the General Motors family. They later gave me a scholarship to go to college, and you know, GM has been a part of my life my whole life. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Katrina McGee, the EVP of Marketing and Communications at the American Heart Association, the oldest and largest organization dedicated to fighting heart disease and stroke. Katrina has a BS in accounting and an MBA. She started her post-MBA career as Marketing Director at the American Heart Association way back in 1996. Katrina left the Heart Association six years later to become the CMO at Susan G. Komen for The Cure, the largest organization fighting breast cancer. Katrina is the author of two books, Be Bold, Be Brilliant, Be You, and her second book, Loving on Me, Lessons Learned on the Journey from Mess to Message. Our guest today is a champion for women and children and an inspiration in the marketing world. This is my conversation with Katrina McGee. Katrina, welcome to the CMO Podcast, and I have to ask you this right away to kick off this podcast. What was the first thing you did this morning? Oh, gosh. I had a moment of gratitude before my feet hit the floor. I always try to be thankful for at least one thing to set my tone for the day. And can you share with us what you were grateful for today? I was grateful my knee was not hurting today. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, yeah. You know, my my thing to get me through COVID has been to close my Apple rings every day. Like literally this Apple watch is running my life. And so yesterday I was doing a run walk and I felt a little tweak. I was like, oh, no, 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 because I am 270 days into closing my rings every day. So I feel like a champ. And uh, that's amazing. My rhythm. Thank you. Thank you. So how do you do it? What's your strategy? What kinds of things do you do, you do to close the rings? Because I'm not as good as you. I close mine maybe half the time. <laughs> I love to bike. I love to bike. It's it's really great uh, exercise. And I just like being outside. And so that speaks to me in, in ways almost nothing else does. Uh, I love walking my dog. Uh, I have a half Jack Russell, half Chihuahua. So he absolutely must go outside every day. (laughs) And um, I also do a bit of running. I'm not one of those people that aspires to a marathon or anything. I just want to keep moving for the rest of my life. So those are my big three. And you live in Dallas, but you're spending a few weeks in Cape Cod. I'm speaking to you and you're in Cape Cod. I'm in Cincinnati. I'd rather be where you are. So (laughs) it, it looks very beautiful in the background, lots of trees and sunshine. So it I wish is. I was with you. I was, wish is. I was across the table from you in Cape Cod. <laughs> well, you know what? I feel very fortunate to be able to just pick up my whole life and move it wherever. Isn't that the great thing about COVID? I mean, COVID is awful. Everything about it is awful. Um, but we have learned that, you know, location is not really a thing where you work for most of us that work in kind of a corporate setting. And so I feel fortunate to spend a month here. I was thinking uh, January, February, if we're still in this, where I can go for another month 
and just, you know, kind of take it as a moment to reset and and um, to really enjoy uh, life differently, safely, but differently. Yeah. I just, uh, we closed our company down in August, or we pretty much, we slowed it down. Never mm-hmm. done that before. And because it's been a rough six months. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it was, you know, more or less off the grid for four weeks. And, uh, and I, I just found it to be incredible. You know, I just yeah. did different things. I read mm-hmm. different things. I listened to different things. I did different things with my time. I wasn't so schedule-based and task-oriented. And I, if you can do it, if you have the freedom, you have the luxury, I think it's just a wonderful thing to do to take sort of a mental and physical and spiritual break for your whole team. Yep. You know, especially these times. I, I agree. I mean, sometimes we get in our head without adult supervision and we just need to take a time out so that we can, you know, hit the reset button and uh, refresh ourselves and really get back to that creative space where innovation, new ideas, fresh perspective occurs. And um, Cape Cod has been great for me to do that. But, you know, you and I have something in common because I actually grew up in Ohio, in Dayton, right down the road from you. And so um, I I miss kind of four seasons in Dallas, which is more on and off. <laughs> so yeah. it's nice to see the leaves changing and um, just, you know, remind myself that everything in life is four season. So listen, I had a great time researching your life before this podcast. And I want to sort of go out on a limb here and at least summarize your career this way. So mm-hmm. you're ready for this? Yeah. You have spent your entire career making a huge difference in the physical, mental, and spiritual health of people, especially women and children. Do I have that about right? Wow. Yeah, you do. (laughs) And I love the way it sounds. Oh, my goodness. But that has been my passion my whole life. So I would like you to share with us today the why behind this life you have chosen. Why this path versus so many others you could have taken? You, know, you could have gone into non, uh, the for-profit business. You could have gone into teaching. You, you, you did go into entrepreneurship and still mm-hmm. are in entrepreneurship. But why this path? Was it a bit of serendipity? Was it planned? Was there something about your education, your upbringing that, that kind of you know, inspired you to take this, this, this journey, this path? I think it was a little bit of both. You know, my whole life I watched my parents um, uh, give back to people in ways that are incredibly meaningful to their life. Even now in the pandemic, my parents figured out how to use Zoom and are doing a marriage boot camp for young couples. Um, And I think it really speaks to this commitment that I was raised with to make a difference with whatever you have. And we all have something that we can contribute to the world. And they were um, fiercely determined that their children would grow up doing that. And so my whole life, that's been a part of my journey. Um, But I did start in for-profit. You know, I worked at oil and gas first, um, and um, I was in accounting. I hated accounting, but I loved what I did because I was a royalty analyst for uh, Native American tribes that had oil and gas mineral rights on their land. Uh, And coming from a family that is part Native American, that was uh, especially meaningful for me. Um, But what I really figured out that I loved was getting people energized about walking in the cystic fibrosis walk that the company was doing as a whole. I was like a floor captain and getting people engaged and planning little events that would get them excited about it. Uh, And that kind of was the first thing that sparked, you know, I really want to do something different with my career. So I went back to grad school, went into uh, agency life for a while, but it wasn't until I was at the American Heart Association the first time that I really found a place I could marry my love of marketing and studying human behavior and all of that with making a difference in the world. And that just lit me up from the inside out, Jim. That was it for me. I knew that that's what I wanted to do in some capacity. So even as I went in and out of entrepreneurship, it always had that element of how can I make a difference in the 
world first uh, and now more so in the lives of people. Like I started this because I love making a difference. Now I love people. And so I approach the work very differently, but the goal is still the same, whether it's with my Career Success Academy, where I'm trying to help people get in the driver's seat of their life and career, or if it's with my work now at American Heart as the head of their marketing department, it is always about how I can empower and equip people to take charge of their life and to reach their goals, whether that be good health, whether that be a great career, or whether that is just, I need to learn how to take care of me (laughs) and manage my own self, which I think is the hardest thing all of us have to learn to do. That's a beautiful personal purpose. I love the way you phrased it. So, but I do want to go back to something you just said. Your parents are doing a Zoom boot camp with young couples. <laughs> tell, tell us a bit about, I don't want to get too off track here, but what are they sharing? What are they, they teaching? I assume they've been married a long time. They have. They also what are, what are they sharing? What are their lessons? certified coaches and counseling. And, you know, I listened in on the first couple just because the couple of sessions, because I was teaching them how to use Zoom. Now now they're pros at it. They probably know more about it than I do. But, you know, it really focuses on teaching people how to communicate better, how to listen to each other, how to... Um, Put the needs of other people first without losing yourself. How to have fun with each other. You know, that's the thing I love most about my parents is that they still enjoy each other's company and laugh and giggle and have fun. And so they they teach practical skills for living and thriving together and creating family and home and Um, They've done it for a number of years. Every time I go visit them, I meet couples that say, oh my goodness, your parents changed my life. And it's because they genuinely want to see people um, happy and whole and safe and uh, secure in their marriages. And it is a profound thing to watch them walk people through challenging circumstances like illness and like COVID where, you know, you are spending way more time with people than you probably planned when you got married and how to make the most of that situation. Wow. Now I want to go back on your career a bit. You just referenced a few things. You studied accounting in undergraduate and your first job was in oil and gas for profit, working uh, with the Native Americans on their rights. Tell us a bit about that first job. You know, first jobs are so important. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's always a story behind a first job. So tell us, you sort of learned about yourself as mm-hmm. a budding leader. And what was kind of the major takeaway from that experience for you? Yeah, you know, it was, it, oh gosh, I learned so much that even colors my career now because they they hired us as a cohort and we had a group of people who trained us that really taught us not only the business of the work, but how to thrive in that particular um Um, discipline. And, you know, one of the things I learned very early on was the power of networking, not networking necessarily to climb the corporate ladder, but to surround myself with people who were mentors, coaches, sponsors, etc., and how to give back to that same circle. You know, I tell um, people who are very young in their career that mentorship is rooted in relationship. And the more that person knows about you, the more value that you provide, the better they are able to coach you and lay out a path pathway to your success. Uh, And so very early in my career, I learned the power of that. Um, But I also learned about corporate America because six months after I started, most of those people got laid off. And so my perspective about, you know, a career journey very early on, I learned that, you know, it's transient. Like you, you give everything you have, every moment you show up, you do your best to deliver excellence, but change is a part of that journey. Sometimes, of your own making and sometimes because the dynamics of business just change. I learned how to weather storms very well. Um, I also learned that while I didn't love the work, I could still find value in what I did. And so um, I decided not to be stuck, but also not to be sad, if you know what I mean. Like I went back to grad school to intentionally create a new pathway for myself, but I also made up my mind I was going to enjoy the journey while I was there. And I think, you know, even in the face of COVID, I have had to bring some of that learning back to myself, that even when I can't change the circumstances, 
I still have a choice. Uh, and so every day I wake up, I start with gratitude. I choose to be happy. And that's, you know, that has really been one of the keys to successfully navigating a career that has spanned ooh, way too many decades to talk about now, Jim. <laughs> Not that many. <laughs> Listen, I want you to talk a little bit more uh, about your career. And it's a rich one. You worked at two of the largest nonprofits in the world trying to solve two of the most intractable health issues in the world. And you've had some work in for-profit. You started your own company. You've written some books. But I want you to share one or two really defining experiences in that career that have shaped Katrina to be the person she is today. Well, the first one that comes to mind is the work that I did in Africa. I uh, was worth with Susan G. Komen. I did not start out over the international work, but there came a time where we needed somebody to represent the organization in our outreach to West Africa to build deeper relationships there. And it was my first time really working in a low to middle income country. Uh, and if you've never worked outside of America, never really um been to places that are under-resourced, uh, it is a career-defining experience. Um, you learn how much can be done with so little. The richness of the experience colors uh, what you think you need versus what you want. Uh, you start to value people in a completely different way uh, that come from a totally different experience and mindset because you realize the ideal that you've grown up with is not the only option for successfully working um, to achieve change. And so that really, even now as I think about it, I get so excited because I can see the work continuing in Ghana and Tanzania and Zambia that I was blessed to sow seeds. And then the local folks empower them with the tools and resources to keep it going. It's such a rich and meaningful part of my life. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, it really has stepped, you know, it really has colored how I see my entrepreneurial journey too, because we think that we need all of these things in place to get started. So often we get stuck at start and we don't really um, ever uh, have to have all that. Sometimes you just have to have the desire, the will, the curiosity and say, I'm going to figure it out as I go. Just take the first step. Uh, and I think that's... Um, I mean, it's a beautiful way to live life, but it's also the way to get things done in the middle of a pandemic. That was so beautifully said, Katrina. You know, I was fortunate to be at Procter & Gamble when we kind of awakened and, and looked outside the U.S. aggressively for growth. And, and I was in so many developing markets in my, I lived in one for several years and I visited so many. And uh, there's just nothing like that experience. Mm -mm. It, it, um, you get outside of yourself. You, you get inspired by the work that you can do to improve life in those countries as a business with the products and services and the people mm -hmm. that you hire and you bring into your organization. So my advice to everyone is get experience outside your comfort zone in countries and cultures that are very, very different from you. There's just nothing like it. I completely agree. And there are so many lessons to be learned around resilience uh, tenacity, adaptability. When you go to low to middle income countries, you know, entrepreneurship is not, it's just not a thing. It's a way of life. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, virtually every family uh, has uh, entrepreneurship as a part of how they put food on the table. Uh, and I think that is so inspiring in terms of the possibilities of what could be. You know, my uh, favorite quote is Emily Dickinson, I dwell in possibility because I have learned uh, that impossible is a solvable problem. You know, and, and I think working in low and middle income countries really uh, shifted my perspective about, you know, finding the can do in any situation. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. 
From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. I want to look at one decision that you made in your career, which I think is really interesting for our listeners. You were CMO at the Susan G. Komen for the Cure in 2012, and you left. You're at this great role at this great organization with a great mission, and you left to start your own company. We've already talked about entrepreneurship a bit in this podcast, and your company's mission, and the company is still going today, mm-hmm. is to help women love themselves, each other, and what they do more. And you did this exclusively for eight years before joining the American Heart Association as head of marketing just this February, February mm-hmm. 2020. So I want you to talk about that. Was that a tough decision? You were on your own, this great company, great mission, and then you went back into a large, large organization. So tell us about why you made that decision and how that's going coming back into a large organization again. <laughs> well, it's, you know, frenetic and crazy and insane and chaotic because we're in a pandemic <laughs> and starting a new role where you have a large team spread across uh, the country uh, while the nation is going through a transformation has been challenging uh, and yet so full of opportunity. And, you know, I came back because I felt like it was Uh, another season of change in my life. I've always been one that has been unafraid to listen to the whispers of the spirit. You know, I very much have a leap in the net will appear approach to life. When it's time to go, even when there's not a certain place, I make the decision to leave because I've learned that staying in a place past your departure time is not good for you or the other people whose growth you're stymieing. So um, I always try to be sensitive to what um, the market is saying and what my gut is saying. And I think often as leaders, we overlook that. And um, so I knew a transition was coming. I had just finished a huge project uh, with Wounded Warrior Project, another great organization that I love. Uh, my work with the Career Success Academy was uh, thriving, and I still love that work. Um, but I just finished a speaking tour going across the country and Canada. And I wanted to honestly be closer to family. So in my mind, I was going to have a dual life. I was going to be in New York and Dallas and find a way to balance that because that made sense to me. Um, And then I just put it out there. I said, this is the kind of life I want to create. I am looking for this. And no lie, two months later, the American Heart Association called me. And it, it just reaffirms for me again our ability to attract the things that we desire when we're very clear about our intentions. I wasn't specific about how I wanted to achieve it. I wasn't specific about the path I had to go down. I just focused on the one desire I had for my life. And uh, when they called, they were in a great season. They were running up to their 100-year anniversary, and they said, we need you. And I said, okay, I love the challenge, but here's what I need. I need to continue to pour into the lives and careers of women. Because if you look at study after study, it is women who fall out of the consideration set. They are are promoted at a lower rate. And because of that, they fall behind and lag in their leadership journey. And I am incredibly passionate. If there's one thing that is central throughout my career, whether it's health or um, career, it is get in the driver's seat. Know what you want and zealously pursue that. And they said, oh, that's great. Yep, keep doing that. Keep speaking, keep going out. And um, it turned into a beautiful marriage. And so I started in February. We went home in March. And I have truly, you know, I just had a, a meeting with our board of directors right before this. And they said, you look really happy. I said, I am. I mean, why not? You should either love what you do or do something different. Yeah. You do look happy, by the way, on the Zoom call. <laughs> now, tell me about that call. You know, you were already thinking about it was time to leap and you got to tell me about that call. What was the background on that? You know, it's funny. They um, <clears throat> they have been looking for somebody to head up their marketing and comms, had actually found the candidate. The candidate fell through and then they... Um, 
they said to the recruiter, we want you to call Katrina. <laughs> and so the recruiter called me and said, they really want to talk to you. I said, about what? Because, you know, you normally don't return to a place you've been, right? And uh, they said, well, we want to talk to you about this role and see if you're interested in it. And uh, I love the fact that the organization is led by two dynamic women and that they have a strong purpose. I have always been committed to good health because I have seen the disproportionate impact of poor health on communities of color. And so uh, this just fit for my life now. It, it fit in a way that resonates with my core values and my desire to move back to Dallas, at least part-time. The pandemic made the decision I was going to move fully back. But, you know, you, you learn in life to just roll with things and um, to have your stability not be on circumstances, but being very clear about who you are and the value you bring. So you were a young woman out of your MBA at <laughs> University of Texas at Arlington. When you first worked at the American Heart Association, yeah. you spent six years there. And as you said, it's very unusual to go back. And you went back at a very senior level. Yeah. How did that early experience of working six years, you know, lower in this organization, how has that changed how you see your role and, and, uh, and your impact right now? Well, I will say as a leader, it makes me very well informed about the journey. And I am, uh, I am so blessed. I'm one of those folks that, you know, has gone from the individual contributor to the C-suite uh, at, at a variety of different places, for-profit, non-profit, agency, et cetera, been able to see different aspects of the career journey. And I think it makes me a really great mentor coach. I think it also helps me understand the importance of coming up with a vision to inspire people and in a equipping them with the tools to succeed, letting them be autonomous in their approach, but creating this cohesive journey so that we all move together. And so my early years gave me a base of knowledge about what I was talking about. Uh, but when I, returning certainly was challenging because just like I had evolved and grown and, you know, honed my leadership skills, um, the organization too had morphed and its focus, while similar, had, had grown as well. So a lot to learn for sure, which is part of what energizes me, but nice that I recognize uh, the environment and the culture. Yeah. I want you to, you know, most of our guests on the CML podcast are running uh, big departments in publicly held, you know, for-profit companies. You're one of the few guests who's been, in, who's in a really, really large nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So I will, I'd like you to share with us what your work is. You know, how is it different from CMOs of for-profits? Our listeners are endlessly curious about what people like yourselves do. You know, how do you spend your time? What are your priorities? What do you focus on? What is being a CMO or EVP of marketing in the American Heart Association like? Yeah, it's funny that people think that it's in some ways so different. You know, I, uh, like any other CMO, I'm constantly trying to ensure that our brand is more relevant. Uh, I try to be market aware and data driven. We actually deliver pro uh, products to the marketplace. We're doing everything from producing um uh, YouTube shows to uh, engaging in some robust social media, um, some innovative things on social media that really engage people. I think the same things that make good marketing in a for-profit are the same things that make good marketing in a nonprofit. We start with key insights, develop strategy, execute in a way that engages our core target audience, which for us, you know, tends to be women across a demographic span, but that are uh, change makers or folks that are at risk or patients. And then we deliver solutions. I'm a big believer that when you speak to a person's whole experience, not just their age or their ethnicity, but really their beliefs, interests, and desires, then you can develop deeper, more meaningful relationships with them. And so I think just like any other CMO, I'm watching the market. I'm looking at what's happening internally. We're delivering products to the marketplace. We actually sell quite a few products at the American Heart Association in addition to um, um, trying to engage more donors to be heroes in our work. And so I, I love it. I mean, all of the things that I learned uh, 
through the MBA program and continue to study and learn are quite similar to what most other CMOs are experiencing. Now you started this, this uh, chapter, the American Heart Association as EVP of marketing, right as, as we talk, right as COVID was hitting. How has that changed your work? I mean, you had a brief coming in, you had time to think about it. So how has this experience of this crisis on many, many levels, how has this affected your work and your approach and your priorities? Yeah, I think for us, because what we deliver are health solutions, it's become really, really, really important to us to be that credible voice in the marketplace um, and to meet the moment, you know, to really be specific and intentional about the advice we give related to COVID, flu vaccinations, open enrollment and every other thing, you know, whether you should send your kids back to school or not. We weigh in on a lot of subjects that are meaty and meaningful in the lives of people. And so I've had to try to find unique ways to deliver that message. So I meet people still where they live, work and play, whether that is through social media, whether that is through earned media, whether that is through hybrid events at at one point where, you know, we weren't all trying to shelter in place. You could do small, intimate things. And so I think you know, for me, first and foremost, I have to know what the market is calling for so that we can survive the pandemic, the racial tensions and the recession. The second thing I will say is, you know, I came back to a hundred year old brand or nearly a hundred years old. And so what does it look like for us going forward? How do we become relevant to more young professionals? People from diverse populations is probably the second thing, um, that I'm grappling with, but in a much more urgent fashion. You know, normally six months in, you would still be doing some of your onboarding and that for me truncated to about a month. (laughs) And then it's time to take action. And I've always been a leader with a bias toward action, but now um, I very much feel the weight of holding people's lives in my hand in a much more substantive way because of the pandemic than I probably would have before. How did you get close to your team? Because you probably only had about a month in the office or wherever you were based. So how did, how did you get your rhythm and the trust built with your team in this environment? Yeah. So when I first started, I, I had implemented coffee with Katrina and I was taking pods of four or five people a couple of days a week and I would just have coffee with them. And it'd probably be three or four people in my office and two up on the screen because we're all over the country. And we had a dialogue. And what I found quickly is they were learning about me and each other at the same time because I wasn't talking about work. I was talking about your dog. I was talking about what you want most. So um, I have kept those going throughout the pandemic just so I I can continue to see people. That's super important to me because at the end of the day, people all want to be seen, heard, loved, and appreciated. And so I try very hard to connect with people to see them. I also am a big believer in celebration. So every team meeting we have, we celebrate some of the work that's been done um, and laud and applaud those folks that are a part of it. And I also, for my leadership team, connect with them regularly. I am a uh, I am a believer in productive meetings. And so I I am the person who would have a 30-minute standing meeting so we can get it done and not waste anybody's time. I've had to slow myself down in the pandemic so I can start with, how are you? Like, I can listen. I can see them. Really look for context clues. Or I can sense that a person is frayed around the edges and try to slow down the pace a bit. Uh, because I, more than anything... I want to be sensitive to the changing dynamic in people's lives. I feel like we can be productive. If you need to work from 8 to 12 and take a break from 12 to 4 and then get back on, I'm trying to be very flexible to accommodate anybody's life circumstances so we can all be at ease. What are you most proud of and happy about in your first seven months? Oh, gosh, the way we have been able to pull together and execute more than anything. I mean, we've done some dynamic work in that first seven months, and we've done it without burning anybody out, without, um, you know, losing sight of each other. I'm proud of the way my team checks in on each other. I'm proud of the way we have shown up in the marketplace for patients. I'm proud of the way the team has has pulled together. It's um you know, I just am so fortunate because I'm with a group of people that have welcomed me back and surrounded me with support. I have re- a really strong leadership team underneath me that has um, 
partnered with me to teach me the parts that I don't know because I'm forever in learning mode, uh, guide me when there's a landmine, uh, but then also um, to, to help me come up with solutions for problems that we can tackle together. So I am very fortunate in that regard and, and very proud of the way we have come together. You are a, a, a tremendous resource on COVID issues. I was on your site just looking at all the content on all these frequently asked questions, these areas of ambiguity, <laughs> these mixed messages we're getting. Your website for all of our listeners is a wonderful, wonderful resource for a lot of things that are on all of our minds. Thank you. You know, we we try really hard with that. You know, uh, we launched the campaign this this summer called Don't Die of Doubt. And it was because people were having symptoms of heart attacks and strokes and were afraid to go to the hospital. And you can imagine why, right? When, uh, you know, that was the hotbed for COVID. At the same time, the hospital is the only place you can go when you're having a heart attack and stroke. And so Don't Die of Doubt was really designed to get people through their fear and to take action to meet them where they were in that moment. Like we know you're afraid because of COVID, uh, but we can't overlook the symptoms. And Jim, someone wrote to us and said, I just want to thank you because my husband was having these symptoms. We toyed with it for a couple of days, but I remembered your Don't Die of Doubt campaign. We went to the hospital and today he is post-surgery having had to have a stent put in. Now imagine, just imagine if they had not gone to the hospital, if they had continued to second guess themselves. And that's that's really the power of the work we do and the way we do it, to meet you in this moment, acknowledge the fear and give you a path of action through it, I think is um, exciting to me as a human being. I'm grateful for that, but also as a marketer to really start to understand people's drivers and, and their triggers and to be able to speak to those in a meaningful way um, is just so rewarding. How do you think about KPIs mm -hmm. for yourself and your team? I mean, you have so many things you're trying to change and make a positive impact in with your organization. Of course, you fund research, you fundraise, you, change, you seek to change behavior, you seek to serve underserved people. So how do you think about KPIs? I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like any other marketing department, we operate based on the funnel. You know, um, part of it is, are we getting more people into the funnel? Are we converting them from aware to familiar, familiar to relevant? You know, for us, a big driver, even at our board of directors level, is to say we want to move the number of people across America who find American Heart Association and the work we do relevant. So a lot of what our um, KPRs are based on is that funnel. And are we driving people to relevance? I think the second thing that I've challenged the group to do in general is to be solution centered. And, you know, because we talk about a lot of things, we can easily slide into just pushing content, just pushing things out there. Like it's 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 kind of the same thing. Like, well, we put it out there. They're just going to buy it instead of speaking to, you know, this is the difference in your life, this product will make and really looking at it, not in terms of the features of the product, but the benefit of the product is a switch that we're making. Um, and we are measuring our efficacy against that. Um, the other exciting thing we have is a fantastic grassroots organization. We're in local markets across the country, which is part of what makes us a bit unique in the nonprofit sector. And so the ability to be able to coalesce the power of one market into the collective force of many is part of what drives our KPIs as well, unifying that voice so we can really maximize our impact around our five core focus areas uh, for the organization, nutrition, security, the work in patients, women, et cetera. So um, we approach it much like any for-profit company in that we have products that we deliver to market, sell based on the benefits, um, but we also sell hope. You know, for people who want to change the world, we are the organization that's making the biggest difference in health equity. And so meeting them in the moment and giving them a path toward action is uh, exciting. How do you set up your team, Katrina? Do you have like designers? Uh, do you have uh, consumer engagement people? Do you have media people? Tell us about your team. 
Yes, yes, yes. We have mm-hmm. all of that. So we have one side of it that is our consumer health division that really takes all the comprehensive science that comes out of our research and says, how is this relevant to consumers? How should we package it for solutions? What products are uh, we going to deliver to the marketplace? That then goes to our integrated marketing team, which has everything from market planning and analytics to the website and social media teams to what we call AHA Productions that produces all of our YouTube shows, et cetera, and says, how do we deliver this to the marketplace? Who's our core target audience? What's the key insight? What's driving them? Uh, And how do we deliver it? And then we also have our communications team, which focuses on earned media, internal communications, uh, um, novel things like um, um, playing on Reddit and new things that we're trying. Uh, so the three of those combined really uh, are helping drive the vision that I've set, which is for us to be the preferred source for credible, equitable health solutions. Like when I see the future, that's what I want AHA to be in the marketplace, not just pushing content, not just speaking to a disease state, but to be about the whole person, mind, body, and soul, and to deliver health solutions. It's a great mission. Tell me, do you have competition? I mean, if I ask a CMO from a lot of companies on my podcast, who you, who do you compete with? They're like this, you know. Yours is a more interesting set. How do you think about competition? Is that even a relevant concept? Well, it's relevant in terms of competing with share of wallet, share of mind. But I look at them more like sister charities because I don't think the American public in particular has an appetite for competition among charities. So I tend not to look at them like that. But certainly if you look across the landscape, you know, there's the American Cancer Society, there's St. Jude, there's Children's Miracle Network. There are a lot of people who are really great at branding, masterful storytellers, people who, you know, if you ask consumers, what are the top nonprofits, American Red Cross, United Way. And so in that regard, there are people who I learn a lot from and that who uh, obviously we market to the same groups of people. Um, But at the same time, I, I really don't like anyone in the industry to use the word competitors because I think it just diminishes the value we all bring. And I just don't think... I don't think the American consumer sees us like toilet paper. You know, they're fine if Charmin and Quilted Northern compete. They're not fine if American Red Cross, American Heart, and American Cancer are competing. I think you're right, and I hope so. <laughs> right? Hey, I wanna, I'm i eager to get to our lightning round because there's so many topics that I'm eager to get your perspective on. But I have one last question before we do that. You wrote a very moving post on June 9, Juneteenth this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, which, for those listeners who may not know outside the U.S., it's a commemoration of the date that slavery ended in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, June, June 19th, 1865. I want you to tell, and you talked about your parents in that post, mm-hmm. and you've already, you mentioned your parents a few times. I'd like you to talk about that post for our listeners. What inspired you to write it? What, what feedback you got? And just give us a little bit more of your perspective on that post. So this Juneteenth, it was after, you know, um, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, people whose lives ended way too soon. And it was a heavy time in America. Uh, sad, but not surprising. Unfortunate, but not unusual. And I think, uh, you know, for me as an African-American woman trying to process what was happening in our country and and how we go forward, um, the celebration of Juneteenth just felt inadequate to just celebrate it. I had to commemorate it. And so I, I told my own story that I had two parents who grew up picking cotton, one who lived on her grandparents' farm and was the beloved grandchild, and my dad, who was the son of sharecroppers. Two very different um, um, perspectives on poverty in America, but both grew up picking cotton. And I started there because most people in America think we're so far away from that, that that stopped in slavery, that 
we weren't living that way anymore. But I am one generation away from people who actually pick cotton. And uh, for me, their story from going from the cotton field to corporate America, both of them through the path of education, uh, my dad being a Vietnam vet, having to go to war and then come back and finish college. Their journey is such a story of resilience and progress and um, just the African-American experience in many ways. And I wanted to share it because I don't think many people get the opportunity to talk to someone like me to understand our history in America, to understand our story. Um, and I am so proud to be their daughter and I'm proud to be the manifestation in many ways of all their dreams. Like to go from the cotton field to being a chief marketing officer in one generation is really phenomenal when you think about it. And uh, yet there is still so much work for us to do. And so their story inspires me, but it also reminds me that I too am called to move us forward on this journey. I too am called to use my voice in a way that inspires people and makes a difference um, and that we cannot rest. We absolutely cannot rest until we see uh, equity, not just equality, but equity um, and social justice objectives are achieved. And for me personally at American Heart now that we experience health equity. And that's really what I was trying to do on Juneteenth is to give people a slice of life. Um, and to help them better understand that journey. So people seem to uh, appreciate it and accept it and be inspired by it. So hopefully um, more people will be courageous in sharing their personal stories too. So I'm going to stay here for a moment. I mean, we are now in the fall and we're coming up on a, an election we're living with this pandemic, with a racial crisis, political crisis, trust crisis in institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have such an interesting view on things. What is your hope for us at large as a society coming out of all of this that we're in the middle of right now? My hope is for real transformation. My fight every day is my cynicism. And, and, you know, that's just real honesty for me because I think, you know, we have been at this place before. Like I said, it is, um, it is so sad, but it's not surprising. And I think the key for us will be for the momentum to continue without us having to see uh, someone be shot or killed in order to galvanize action. Uh, recently, uh, Edelman came out with their trust barometer. I don't know if you saw the results of it recently, but what you see is a fluctuation. So everything happened over the summer. The world exploded. Everybody said, we must make change. But then it waned until Jacob Blake occurred. And then it went right back up. And so my prayer, my real hope is that this is not a moment in time, not a really sad and sickening summer, but that that we stick with it until we see transformation, that there be real and substantive commitments that come out of it beyond just the words that companies and people have said, that that is followed by actions and deeds, and that my um, son and hopefully someday grandchildren won't experience the same things that I have. You work with a lot of corporate people. You have a lot of CEOs that advise you. You have your CEO circle at the American Heart Association. What would you like to see companies do that they're not doing right now? Oh, my goodness. That is just such a loaded question. You know, I think uh, first and foremost, I want to see us get our house in order in a substantive way. For years, decades, there has been a lack of advancement for people of color within corporate America. We are missing from board uh, rooms, from leadership circles. You know, sometimes we're at the table and still don't have a voice. Those things need to change for substantive um, 
advancement to occur. And that requires a real commitment. It will not happen by just saying it. You have to make the effort to actually recruit and retain top talent. And so I would love to see first and foremost, um, the House be in order there. And second, that their public commitments that everybody made in the summer be followed by actions and deeds. And I think, you know, it is great that they gave so many people Juneteenth off as a holiday, but that is not progress. That's that is just, you know, uh, pacifying a a loud voice. Substantive change would be um, a commitment to stem from kindergarten through college through careers so that you see more diversity in tech companies. Substantive change would be, you know, representative talent in every level across organizations so that the company is reflective of the community. Uh, and I think when we get to that place, when we can have real conversation, tough conversations about that, that transformation will occur. I mean, like everybody else, I mean, the millennials give me great hope because, you know, they are on the front lines of speaking up and speaking out. But the data also tells us they are losing their jobs at a more rapid rate than anybody else during the recession. And so... You know, I think we have to be uh, intentional about ensuring that their recovery from this economic recession doesn't take, you know, 40 years and they are no longer a part of of the richness of, of the corporate experience or the government experience or the nonprofit experience, but they are um, brought back into the fold as quickly as possible so that we don't find ourselves with another dilemma 30 to 40 years later. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Katrina, I want to end this marvelous discussion with a lightning round. What are you reading or listening to or watching these days, which is inspiring you, making you think? Well, I'm I'm reading um, a book about brand story. I want to be a masterful storyteller. I really do. I think there is such power in stories to open mindsets, to change perspectives, to inspire action. So I definitely want to be a better storyteller. Uh, and then I am reading the book Cast, which talks about the history of America. And uh, I am learning a lot. You know, I'm one of those people where... I just want to be a forever learner. So I usually have two or three books. I'm in the process of, you know, something from a business perspective, some social justice thing. And every once in a while, I throw in fiction because I think they're the best storytellers. Uh, yeah, just to keep it interesting. Yeah, I do the same. I mix it up <laughs> with all of those. It's, it's, I think it's healthy for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who has been the most influential mentor in your life? Um, Well, on a personal level, I would have to say my parents. Um, On a professional level, I would say probably um, Hala Mottlemob. She used to be the um, CEO and president of Church's Chicken, and then she was over Arby's and did the turnaround there. But in between those two things, she did a stint as the CEO and president of um, Susan G. Komen. And she really challenged me to... um, expand my portfolio. You know, you get good at a certain thing and you're rocking and rolling and doing that. But she was the one that said, no, I'm going to pick you up and get you engaged in some international work. No, I really want you to think about how we could start Komen University and do the research for that. Now, you know, it was always what's on next on the horizon. And I love that. She taught me a lot about, um, applying my skill set in a variety of different ways, which I think made me a richer leader, as well as just a person who um, who doesn't just think out of the box. I, I literally want to burn the box uh, and to just figure out how to live life large and expansive and do all the good I can with what I have. You have said there is no work-life balance. There is just a balanced person. Mm-hmm. What are your key rituals to be a balanced person? 
end the day, begin the day with gratitude and with grace. Whatever I got done, it's enough. I do not beat myself up about it all night or the next day. Uh, I am a big believer in getting outside, getting some vitamin D. And so even if I just go stand in the sunshine for two minutes between meetings, I make sure that I breathe some fresh air, especially during COVID. Um, and the third thing is I try to connect with people. Um, COVID has reminded all of us that life is precious, short, and you can lose people in an instant. And so I have challenged all of us to be mindful of reaching out to people who may be isolated, who cross your, you know how people cross your mind. You say, I'm going to get to them, but you never really do. I'm trying to be intentional about stopping when a person crosses my mind and reaching out to them. Uh, and that's how I stay balanced because if you let external circumstances decide or make the decision for you, if you know you're going to be happy or not, you'll be miserable all the time. And so I try very hard um, to stay in a state of gratitude and grace, to choose happiness, even when I could be miserable, uh, and to be a leader with infectious energy, you know, bring the positive wherever I am. Um, and I find that it makes for a much better day for me and the people around me. So if every CMO listening to this podcast today could follow you around for a week, what would they learn from you? Oh, my gosh. Well, Beyond what you just talked about, which is very rich. <laughs> I hope that they would learn how to be a student of um, being market aware. I, I really pride myself in trying to figure out what's happening right now and how to speak to it. Um, you know, the the fun thing for me is the stuff that we deliver. I get excited about the delivery, but I learn the most in the comments because people will tell you what they want and how they're feeling if you listen. And so I try to practice being an active listener. Uh, you'll find that when I'm in meetings, I'm not on my phone. I don't multitask. Multitasking is the kryptonite of productivity. And so I'm very present when I'm present. So I'm paying attention to how people look, how they sound, what they're saying, what they're not saying. Because while we're apart, you miss the shared energy that can tell you a lot about a person. So I have to work extra hard to be there. Um, you'll find that I try to lead with strategic insight. Um that I'm very coachable, um, but I'm also very decisive. We're not going to talk about it for 30 days. We're going to make a decision. Um, and mostly that I love people. And when you love people, you just engage with them on a different level. Uh, and I hope that comes through more than anything else in my life. Katrina, who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? What guest would be very interesting for you? Oh, gosh. Um, hmm, that's a really good question. I think I would love to hear from, well, my favorite brand, I know this is really random, is Coca-Cola. So I would always love to hear what Coca-Cola is doing. My second favorite brand is Target, uh, mostly because whatever they deliver, I always know it's Target talking and I kind of dig that. Um, but then I would love to hear from somebody that's really looking at the world through a global lens like the World Bank or maybe... Um, United Nations or something like that. I think, you know, more and more our employees, our work, you know, we're all global citizens. And so I think there are some of us who have much more insight to trends that are going around the world than those of us whose companies are, you know, primarily U.S. focused. So that would be intriguing as well. Katrina, you have infected me with your energy. I'm going to let you have the last word. Do you have any question you would like to ask me before we sign off? I do have a question. What is the one thing that has been consistent with all the CMOs you've spoken to in terms of what their aspirations are for the future? You got a heavy one there. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you this. The one constant theme that I've heard is that relationships are everything. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone that I've spoken to has been an incredible human being you know, on, on some level, but the one thread is they invest in relationships with, uh, in their personal life, in their business life. They approach consumers as you would approach a relationship mm -hmm. and they spend time that, you know, they just don't talk it, they act it. So that makes me hopeful about our function and our discipline. I think, uh, the second part of your question, 
I think most people are trying to embrace what's going on around us mm -hmm. and make something positive happen. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. A lot of commitments were spoken about this summer. And, and people are focusing, I think, on their home first, which they should. But now we have to see it happen. And mm -hmm. I sense it is happening. They are trying. Are we going to be perfect? No. But people are really trying to, uh, there is a, there's a raised sensitivity to the impact CMOs can make. And that has expanded. And I think that's very positive. I would agree. Absolutely. That was good. Thanks, Katrina. I hope to see you after COVID someday, face to face. We can have one of those Katrina coffees. How's that? Oh, that would be fantastic. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. That was my conversation with Katrina McGee. Katrina is one bright light in our industry and in the world at large. This podcast was so full of positive thoughts, pragmatic advice. She learned from her most important business mentor in her life that she had to expand her portfolio, develop more skills, get more experiences. Katrina talks about how she starts her day with a moment when she first wakes up of gratitude to take a pause in her life to think what she is thankful for. And Katrina spoke about her parents with such affection and such inspiration. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.